be continuing wrapping up our journey in the book of Acts this morning. The book of Acts, chapter 28. Acts 28. We're almost there. It's been, a, it's been a, almost a three-year journey. And I can tell by the excitement on your faces that you're so glad that it's almost over. No? Nobody's glad that it's almost over? I'm almost at a point where, what are we going to do next? Well, I have, I have a few thoughts in mind. But as we go into the book of Acts, today, Acts 28, I want us to think back how the book of Acts started. And in Acts chapter 1, it's a sequel, Dr. Luke writes to the great Theophilus, as is recorded in the, in the beginning of the book of Acts and in the first chapter of the book of Luke. He writes, this is a sequel. So he's writing this two-volume book, if you will, this two-volume story about Jesus Christ and the Acts of the Apostles. And, you know, we're at the end of the book of Acts, but if you go back to the beginning, you see that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, told the disciples that power was going to come upon them. The power of the Holy Spirit was going to be on these. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that power. And in the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. You know why the book of Acts is called the book of Acts? It's called the Acts of the Apostles. The action of the Apostles. And if you think about it, this book has so much practical relevance to our lives today that we can draw from almost every single passage or verse, even almost every single word that's written in this book, to learn how we should live our lives as Christians. You know, I, I'm reminded of the days of old when you go back to Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s and um, George Wycliffe and, and these other, uh, William Tyndale and these other guys who preached over the past two or three hundred years and they had these turn and burn hellfire and brimstone messages, which is a beautiful thing. They had great revivals that came all across the land. But you know what's just as important as a turn and burn message is giving you practical information of how to live a Christian life. Because if all we do is convict people day in and day out, but we don't ever give them any practical discipleship type of information, how do we ever expect them to grow into mature believers? Because I can preach up here today and every single day from the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and we can have a turnover message every single day for a year straight. But people will often, as they did then and do now, will walk away feeling empty because they don't know how to apply the Scriptures. I feel, as God has laid these things on my heart, that I, I have this yearning inside of me to go into the minor prophets and preach to you the message that these prophets preach to the nation of Israel. But before we do that, we have to have some guidance on how we should live our lives. And I've been wanting to finish the book of Acts for a long time, and I've been sidetracked many weeks in the past. Some of it was during the pandemic, some of it was before the pandemic, before Easter, and we went on these different rabbit trails. But I think it all is because the Holy Spirit has led me to what we need to hear, including myself. But today, in this chapter, 28 verses 1 through 10, mostly in the first six verses, we're going to come across a very touchy subject today. And it's going to directly relate to what's going on in our nation and in the world. That you can't judge a book by looking at its cover. You can't judge someone by their circumstances. And you can't judge someone by the color of their skin, their religion, or their creed. You cannot do it. It's not biblical. 
Because we're going to see in this island of Malta, this little small little island that they get shipwrecked on, how the people automatically assume, based on circumstances, that Paul should have been dead. That's what we're going to read here very soon. And we're going to take this and we're going to extrapolate it out. We're going to bring a certain biblical truth that we can reference other parts of Scripture if we really want to. But we're going to look at this today and we're going to see the damage that can be done if we don't yield to the Holy Spirit and get rid of ourselves. If we don't die to ourselves and crucify our flesh, we're going to continue to live in sin. So let's read this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 28, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 10. And he says, Dr. Luke says, When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, for it was winter, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself onto his hand. He had bit by a snake. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Kind of fickle, aren't they? In verse 7, he says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Pulis, who was who welcomed us and entered, excuse me, and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Pulis was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were second sale, they supplied us with all that we needed. Let's pray together. Most gracious Father, we do thank you today for these words in the book of Acts. And as we go through this today, I feel the message you placed on my heart this morning is one of sensitivity, and it's one of uh, what we would call a hot topic. And I do pray that Holy Spirit, you lead me and guide me, that regardless of what the words I have written on my outline, you help me yield to you. And not speak an opinion, but speak biblical fact and biblical truth to your people, of all who are sitting here and who are watching and who will watch online. I do pray this, that we receive a message today from the Holy Spirit, a message of conviction on all of us, on how we should live our lives, and how we should practically apply the truths of Scripture. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we do so humbly pray. Amen. So let's talk about this little island of Malta. Like I said before, it's a very small speck in the Mediterranean Sea. And it's a very small little speck right underneath the boot of Sicily. You know, if you look at the nation of Italy, it looks like a leg, a lady's leg with a boot. And, and Sicily is the soccer ball that Italy kicks. And right underneath Malta, there's this little speck of, of something in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's a little island. And it, it was inhabited by numerous people throughout the years. It's become rather populated. And, and in Malta, it, it, it's it, interestingly, because we, we read further, further before this, in the book of Acts, we read that, that these, these people were on this ship, and it was setting sail. They were in this storm being tossed about. And how they were on their way to Rome. And if you drew a line vertically, 
that Malta is like due south of Rome. Of course, they had to get around Sicily and go up the coast of Italy, but providentially, God allowed them to land in Malta from a shipwreck. Now, we could spend all week, all year, talking about the providence of God, but that's not the message this morning. But just think about that. Even in the midst of the storm, God is with them. His will was being providentially fulfilled in the midst of a shipwreck. Think about that. There's a song out there, In the Eye of the Storm. He remains in control. Maybe that's next week's sermon. Maybe I'm not going on vacation after all. Has anybody ever been in a storm of life? Let's, let's take this real quick, real, real quick. In the storms of life, we lose sight of land. We lose sight of what we think we should do or what we think we should know. And as we're tossed about to and fro, what happens to us? We're not able to navigate. We feel like all hope is lost. And then poof, we end up where we were supposed to be all along. And you know where we typically end up at the end of the storm? On our knees praying to God. On our knees praying to God. Now what we realize here is they didn't really know where they were until they found out that the island was called Malta and then they realized where they were. How often does God do that in our lives? No matter what we have going on, He always brings us to where we need to be and He takes us and places us where He wants us to go. If only we will yield to Him. The natives are very hospitable. Reminds me of the stories that I heard growing up as a child and in, in history class in school. The natives of this land were very friendly to the people who came in to it. Hospitable. The, the, the Greek here, the great extraordinary kindness, the, the Greek word is uh, the same word we get our English word philanthropy from. Imagine that. The natives who have these people crash their party, build them a fire so they can warm themselves because it's cold, it's wintertime. Nowadays, we struggle to even be courteous to our friends and neighbors, let alone people we don't know. You know, there's a thing called Southern hospitality. And I can promise you in Darlington it's alive and well because there's not a single house I can go to that someone doesn't offer me something to eat or something to drink. Now, I don't know if that's because I'm the pastor or because that's just how they are. Because I only have a biased experience. But I'd like to think I like to think, however biased I am about Darlington, I like to think that's just how people are. I like to think that. Because I've heard stories of, of uh, Sherwood and, and Daniel. Uh, there was somebody who, who broke down on the interstate, and they went around and brought them back to the shop and tried their best to fix them and gave them some money so they could get their stuff fixed. And just they, So many people in this community have done things for people that they did not know, and who would have thought that some podunk crossroads in the middle of nowhere, at least in today's society, this speck on the map called Darlington could ever be such a beautiful, hospitable place. But let me ask you something. Would you guys, if you went out and canvassed the area, would the people around this location, this geographic location, would they feel the same way that those travelers did so long ago? Would they feel that the people here are, hosp are, are hospitable? Would they feel the people here are naturally benevolent? Would they feel that the people here
here genuinely care for the strangers? Because did not Jesus command us to feed those who are hungry? Does not the Old Testament tell us to care for the widows and the orphans? Do we seek to care for us, fortunate? Do we really? Or do we balk at it because they put themselves in that situation? You could very much say that the people who were in charge of the ship, the Romans, the centurions who were in charge of the merchant ship, that they were carrying these prisoners back to Roman, you could probably make an educated assumption that they put themselves in this position because Paul warned them not to set sail when they did it anyway because the weather was bad. So they put themselves in a situation, but did the Maltese people take any exception to that? Nope. Didn't care one bit. They didn't care that they were foolish and set sail in the middle of winter and it wasn't, they shouldn't have done it. They didn't care that they weren't Maltese. They didn't care that they weren't from there. They didn't care about any of the things that we care about today. You know what they cared about? People were in need. And they helped. And they helped. You know, things are not always what they appear. We shouldn't make assumptions or be presumptuous of other people based on what they look like, based on how they're dressed, based on where they come from. We shouldn't even be presumptuous or make assumptions of people based on how long they've been in a certain place. Because you know what I found in my short tenure on this earth and the various places that I've lived? That often it's the outsider who knows more about what's going on inside than the people who are inside do. And the person who's outside has a better perspective of how to fix the problems that are happening inside because they don't have any biases. And they're not related to anybody. The interesting part about the dynamic in churches and in communities is that we are so full of presumptions that we don't give credit where credit is due. Matter of fact, I'm going to be bold this morning, and I'm going to, it's not here, but I'm going to say it anyway. If Jesus Christ came through that door, would we recognize him? And I don't mean we in Darlington specifically, although that's who I'm addressing right now, would we recognize him if we were somewhere else as part of the body of Christ? Would we recognize Jesus Christ if he came through this door? The sad thing is, I think that, uh, I don't think that that's a resounding yes. I really don't. And I don't base that on, on my personal opinions. I base it on what people are doing with their lives in church and in their communities. It seems as our nation as a whole has gone through the last century, individuals have become just that, individuals. Individualism has crept in and taken over corporate philanthropy. Individualism has led to selfishness, and selfishness has led to people saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, and everybody else, well, whatever. Our affluence, and I got this from a man named Doug Johnson in, in Red Oak. He was one of the deacons down there, and this is where his origin went Wednesday night Bible study one time. Our affluence has led to our own destruction. Our affluence has led to our own destruction. Matter of fact, I spoke, uh, I was teaching.
one of the older Sunday school classes there. They were all in their 70s or older, and I was teaching a class one morning. And we were, I forget where we were at, but one of the statements I made, I used that same statement. And every single person in there, none of them ever owned a lake house or a beach house. None of them did. I'm not saying owning a lake house or a beach house is bad, or a river house, or whatever. I'm not saying that's bad. That's not what I'm getting at. But their priorities were for other things. Matter of fact, let's even go even further than that. Do you guys know when this church first started, the church didn't carry its mortgage? The members of the church, the families of the church, the founding families carried the mortgage of this church. And they went without so that the church could pay the bills, so they didn't have debt. People sacrificed in their own homes so the house of God could flourish. Now, if I was to take a straw poll in Darlington today, or if anybody, anywhere in their communities, whoever may be watching at home or wherever, or hearing this in podcasts later on, if you were to take a straw poll of the people in your church and see how many people will be willing to take a mortgage payment and take turns throughout the course of a year for a church, how many people would be willing to do it and sacrifice? Things are always what they seem. From the outside looking in, oh, everything's perfect in the church. Yeah, we got people who are willing to give and sacrifice. How much are you willing to sacrifice for God? Too often we make presumptions and assumptions based on what we see rather than what happens in front of us. Sometimes we make false presumptions and false assumptions based on what we hear. We've never even seen anything. We just hear about it. All of us be great. We take someone else's word for it. This viper, the snake, bites Paul. Anybody ever led the wood for a fire? Anybody? You've done any woodwork, you pick up a bundle of sticks. The worst thing you want to see in there is a snake come out of it, right? Anybody ever had a snake come out of a pile of wood at I seen a copperhead come out of a pile of wood, but I wasn't near it. And I wasn't anywhere near it when I saw it coming out here. I ran really fast. Had a, had a, a cottonmouth chase me down the trail once in South Carolina when I was running. It slithered behind me. I found a higher gear that day. <laughs> uh, you know, a viper, it, it references a poisonous snake. But you know, the island of Malta doesn't have any poisonous snakes today. Not a single poisonous snake is indigenous to the island of Malta. In fact, I was studying this. I, I found that rather odd that Luke, the doctor, the accurate historian, would say viper. And you know what the reasoning is? Just because there's no poisonous snakes there today doesn't mean there weren't any 2,000 years ago. You with me? And based on the reaction of the natives, you would think they would know if the snake was poisonous or not, right? Huh? So a viper bites Paul. Now, because he just survived a shipwreck. He just survived, just came on land. Then he gets bit by a snake. What would you think if you saw that? I see by the looks on your faces, some of you. That you probably be thinking the same thing the natives were thinking. Well, he this man had it coming to him. He must have done something wrong. It appears as if he's getting a message from somewhere divine that he ain't supposed to be here no more. He must have done something really bad. Matter of fact, the natives accused him of being a murderer. Because he got oh, because he got bit by a snake. How quick are we to judge other people based on their circumstances? See, you can't assume what someone's status is based on their circumstances. 
know their story, you don't know them. You ever heard that story, that the statement about first impressions, going to job interview, make a good first impression, right? Make a good first impression because you don't know, because that's all they have to see of you. It's what's written down on paper on your resume, which is probably fluffed up anyway, and their, their interaction with you in the interview, how you dress, how you look, how you, when I was in the Navy, we went through this thing called tax class at the end when you get out, called transition assistance preparation service or something. And it's a week long. You got to sit eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, and they teach you all this good stuff about the VA and everything. And then they spend a whole day or two teaching you how to interview and how to prepare your resume so you can get a job when you get out. How you can correlate military lingo to civilian lingo so people can understand that you were in charge of operating a nuclear power plant or a whole electrical distribution system because an electrical operator just won't cut it. So they teach you this over two days. And one of the things they teach you, they spend three hours in the morning teaching you how to present yourself in an interview. What to wear, what, what shirt color to wear, what tie color to wear, what suit to, to wear, how to polish your shoes, how to sit in an interview, how to fold your hands, how to take notes, how to have a thank you card. All this stuff is done and taught to you before you leave the military. They want to make sure you make the best first impression you can possibly make. The sad part is, anybody can stand on their head for an interview. When I was a supervisor at CSX, I had to interview people, and all these people put on their best face. It's like going on a date. They put their best foot forward, their best appearance forward, and you make this assumption, this educated decision on whether or not you want this person to work for you, then they come to work for you, and after two months, they turn into the biggest piece of food you've ever seen in your life. You see their true colors come out. You can't make assumptions about what you see because you don't know the person, you don't know the circumstances. Conversely, if somebody is going through a really hard time in life, they're downtrodden, maybe they're poor, maybe they made a bad decision and they're having to live with the consequences of that bad decision. Whether it's drugs, they made a bad investment decision, or whatever the case may be. We can't judge them and assume what they should have, what fate they should have because of what decisions they may have made in the past. Should we? How many chances have we all been given? How many times have we messed up? How many times did we deserve more than what we got? And I don't mean it in a good way. And you know what? The prejudice that the natives showed Paul and their thoughts is no different than the prejudice we have against people today. No different. The sad thing is, people can't communicate. I don't think they've ever really been able to communicate well, but social media has only accentuated that lack of ability to communicate. It's easy to hide behind a computer screen and type a bunch of stuff without saying it to someone's face. The really, really sad part is we make assumptions about people because of what their color is or because of what religion they may be or because of what part of the country they may come from. <clears throat> I was talking to somebody the other day. They asked me where a person lived. I said they lived in Connecticut. He said, that tells me all you know about them right there. Really? Are we that shallow of a group of people that we automatically assume because of where someone's from that that tells us everything they need that we need to know about them? Because essentially what this person was getting at is they know their political persuasion, they know their religious persuasion, and they know every single thing about them because of where they reside. What if they can't move? What if they ain't got no money? What if their whole life 
They spit right there. That's just like somebody who lives in Darlington for four generations, and they say, oh, they must be a dumb hillbilly hick because they live in the South. That's the most ignorant thing you could possibly say. Is it? Are you with me? But there are people who make decisions about people because of that. I've seen it firsthand. Because they assume based on their color or where they're from or any other little tidbit of information about them, they make these assumptions about what their qualifications are, who, how smart they are, how, how, how they've been. They make all these assumptions, and all they know is one small piece of information. How horrible is it that we do that to each other? We're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to be the light of God. We're supposed to be welcoming to everybody. And we alienate everybody by one statement because we don't like the way somebody looks or we don't like where they're from or we don't like something they have to say. Last time I checked, everybody has an opinion. And most of them are wrong. That's my opinion. Let me tell you this, uh, something else. I, I want to I discount a, an, an Eastern spiritual belief here called karma. Have you ever heard of karma? The term what goes around comes around is not karma. It's what we contemporarily define karma as, but karma is actually a Hindu and Buddhist and other Eastern religion principle that is a perpetual knot. And it basically says that your life perpetuates and it goes into rebirth and being born into other creatures based on your previous life's action. So if you lead a good life, you're going to be born into a higher strata or status in life. And if you lead a really good life and you're horrible to people, you're going to be born into a lower strata to pay you back for your previous sins. That's karma. So these natives, they were believing in karma. How many of us have a have a statement? Well, they got that, they, they must have got what they deserve. They must have done something really bad in life to get messed over like that. What if they didn't? What if they didn't? Well, why, why would we be so quick to assume that we, as, as finite human beings, have the wisdom of God to determine what somebody else has been through in their lives? What if they didn't experience, what if they experienced something that was their fault? Like myself when I was a child and I was raised in foster care for a couple of years. What if I'm going to turn out to be a felon or a heathen? Oh, he must have done something wrong. But what if that had nothing to do with me? Now, what if that's because I have, I have choices and I could have corrected myself along the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that people who are raised in the system don't have any, any recourse or action. They can make their own decisions. But what I'm saying is, why would we prejudge them based solely on where they came from? But we have a tendency to do that in this, in this culture today, too. We have a tendency to write people off because they were born into unfortunate circumstances. And anybody who's any kind of civil service can attest to it because you see it regularly. Why are we so quick to write people off? I'm sorry if this is a hot topic and just make people feel uncomfortable today. But as I was preparing this, I just, just, just came to me. <clears throat> you know, God allows things to happen to people, good and bad, because of free will and free choice. Amen? And because of this free will and free choice, we live in a, because of sin, we live in a fallen world. But in verse 5, it says, However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. And in verse 6, it says, But they were expecting that he was about to swallow up or suddenly fall down dead. How often do 
probably would do that. When somebody does something evil to us, we wait around for them. Something bad happens. I hope they get their just recompense for what they did. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul, Paul quotes an Old Testament saying, it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And Romans 12, 17 tells us that we should live peaceably with all men. That's hard to do with someone wrong, gang. How many have been wrong? How many people try to reconcile? It's easier to write somebody off than it is to reconcile with them, isn't it? That we don't have to deal with them. Just leave the problem over there. Anybody ever waver or wonder for payback? You don't have to answer that. That's, you can keep it to yourself. You're vindictive enough to say, I, I hope something bad happens to that person. And you don't even know. You know, we have a cursed earth from Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the world, the earth became cursed. <clears throat> and we still live under that cursed earth. <clears throat> Bad things happen all the time, but how do we define these life occurrences? How do we define them? It's based on our perspective. <clears throat> if we have a biblical perspective and a biblical outlook, we don't typically see these as bad things that happen. We'll see them as trials to overcome and further rely on God. James 1 2 says, Consider the joy when we encounter various trials and tribulations. How do you find joy when something doesn't go your way? Well, I tell you. If you don't find your joy in your circumstances, you find it in Jesus. I know that's all oh, this easy for you to say this. You're right, it is. It's very easy. I'll say it. It's so easy, I'll say it again. It's very easy to find joy in God and not in your circumstances. It's a real hard to do it when you're faced with circumstances and trials and tribulations in your life. It's hard to find joy. <clears throat> How do you do it? We've got to change our perspective. The reason why people have a hard time focusing on joy is because they'd rather look at the negative than the positive. They'd rather look at what they don't have instead of what they do have. They'd rather look at what isn't going right for them instead of looking at what is going right for them. The hard part is, in this passage of Scripture, Paul had to it. Something bad happens, shake it off. Simple as that. I like to complain. Something doesn't go my way. I do. That whole thing, do all things that are already and complaining, and I don't, I, don't, I don't do well with that. That's a limitation of flaw I have. <clears throat> and when, I, when I'm dealing with something like that, I, 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 I don't really have a lot of long suffering either. I, I, I struggle, and I'm, one of my limitations is patience. When something aggravates me. Because my perspective is not right. It takes me a few minutes, maybe a day, to keep my perspective back to be focused on God. Do you guys struggle with your perspective not being right? Because I tell you, as human beings, we all are going to struggle with our perspective not being correct. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat is <clears throat> killing me. <clears throat> Instead of looking at the negative, let's look for God's purpose or how God can be glorified through the circumstance. <coughs> People who have a, a major life-altering illness, some people look at them and say, I don't know how you do it. You know how they do it? Because God. 
in the most beautiful picture is when a person suffering looks at their family and they're joyous. My uncle Rusty had cancer for several years, and in his last years, his younger brother, my, my one of my other uncles, had trouble understanding. He's like, "You've done everything right, believe in the Lord, and you're dying, and I've done everything wrong, and I'm healthy." And he's, he's still to this day, my uncle doesn't get it. To this day, he doesn't get it. This life we live on this earth is fleeting. It doesn't matter what happens to us here. What should matter to us is how we live it and who we live it for. Do we live it for ourselves or do we live it for God? We must trust in the providence of God all the time. And trust that God has us where he wants us all the time. And we will find that oftentimes if we go through life and we don't make and we're not presumptuous, we don't make assumptions about other people where they are, they won't make assumptions about us. And if they don't make assumptions and they don't look negatively upon us because of where we're from, what we're going through, or any of those other kind of circumstantial issues, and they look at us for who we are, believe it or not, they'll probably help us. And maybe, just maybe, God puts that person in your life that might not smell the best, might not look the best, might not be from the best place, might not have the same socioeconomic <coughs> status you do or whatever the case may be. Maybe he puts that person in your life for you to serve him and be the hands of Jesus. How many opportunities have we missed in our lives because we prejudge somebody? How many opportunities to become lifelong friends with someone have we squandered because... We want to look at the circumstances instead of the person. I think we beat the horse enough today. But I really want to challenge you to take this message and understand that Jesus calls us to love all people. Our nation says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So if we as a country have it in our founding statement that all men are created equal, then why don't we treat each other as equals? Why don't we treat each other as equals? James actually says it in his letter, the half-brother of Jesus Christ writes this down, that we should not look to those who are, I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have it in front of me to quote it, but he basically says we shouldn't associate with those who have a lot to discount the ones who don't have anything. That's being hypocritical. So if all men are created equal, then all men are always equal in God's eyes. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody with me? Not your heads wiping on the seat. I think I can hear the marbles shaking. Because if all men are, if, they, if we start out equal, we're going to die equal because we're equal. Anything you get on this earth, you can't take it with you, right? So we're always equal. But we like to think that our, our stature in life, our position in life, is based on some earthly material possessions, and the reason we have such a hard time accepting people for who they are and is because we think that we're better than they are. Or, conversely, we think they're inferior than we are. And the reason why that's not biblical is because that's not what the Bible teaches. We're all created equal. We're all supposed to, and you know the great equalizer? No, it's not Smith and Wesson. It's Jesus Christ. 
all men equal. By one man's death, all became equal. Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter. Red, yellow, pink, purple, black, white, green, whatever. Isn't that beautiful? The circumstances no longer matter. Your color no longer matters. Right? Where you come from, if you talk like me, or you talk like the Yankee, or anything, none of that matters. None of that matters. Jesus makes everything better. We need some Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. And the more Jesus we have, the better off we'll be. We should take a large helping of them. And you know how you do that? Read your Bible. Man, this is going to be long. I'm sorry. Read your Bible. Pray. Talk to Jesus. We all need some Jesus. He's like the smorgasbord of a, a food that we can eat regularly. And we only take a snack every couple, every couple days. Maybe if we had a little bit more Jesus in us, and less of ourselves in us, we wouldn't be as quick to make snap judgments of other people. We're going to have a, a song of invitation. And it's a contemporary song, so I know we might not know the words. But I want us to stand. After we pray here, I want us to stand. The words will be on the screen. And if you don't know the words, just close your eyes. Listen to the music with your eyes closed. Just let the Holy Spirit move in your life, okay? If you have a decision to make for Jesus, you want to come and pray, rededicate your life. Everybody's a member here, I believe. But whatever you need to do with Jesus, you can do it during this time. Let's pray together.